With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everybody, it's your friend Adam from GolfUnfiltered.com and welcome back to the Golf Unfiltered Podcast, episode 163. You can find me on Twitter at GolfUnfiltered and you can send me an email golfunfiltered at gmail.com we also have an instagram page that we try to put some stuff out there every so often this is a fun episode i actually joined uh my friend matt saturnus from pluggedingolf.com you can also follow him at pluggedingolf on twitter and instagram uh i was on his his podcast he's got a great podcast the plugged in golf podcast and we talked a little bit about a recent round of golf that he and i had at medina country club you heard me talk about this a little bit in my previous episode uh, 162. Um, and there's some unique things going on on course two, the newly restored uh, course two over at Medina that Matt and I talk a little bit about. And we cover a little bit about uh, the U.S. Open as well, just very briefly. I know we don't talk too much about professional uh, the professional game here, but we couldn't uh, have a conversation about the good things of a great golf course without talking about all the bad things <laughs> that we saw at Shinnecock Hills uh, over the past weekend. Before we get into this week's episode, um, I did just want to give a quick shout out to my friends over at the Hackers Paradise. Be sure to go out there and visit their forums. They've got a lot of great content out there all the time, as well as all my friends listening on the THP radio app. Uh, also, a quick shout out to our friends over at Srixon Golf and Cleveland Golf. You guys know that I'm playing their equipment. Still love it. Best clubs I've got in my bag right now. And I also want to give a shout out to all of you who have just sent in a ton of of support, whether it be direct messages, emails. Uh, it's just been really, really great to hear from all of you as a result of our last episode. Yes, the last episode was of a little bit more uh, a serious in tone, um, something that I don't typically do too often uh, here on the podcast, but it was something that was uh, important for me to share. I really am uh, just ecstatic at the um, reception that it's received, and so Continue to share your stories. I read them all. I try to respond to as many as I can. Um, really appreciate just all the support you guys have uh, sent over. Everything's fine. Everything's going great. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with me and my buddy Matt Saturnus from Plugged In Golf. If you have any comments or questions regarding the Longleaf Tea System, which is something that we're going to talk about in this episode, please feel free to either email, email me or Matt Saturnus. You can find his contact information at PluggedInGolf.com. So without further ado, this is my buddy uh, Matt Saturnus from Plugged In Golf. We are joined once again on the Plugged In Golf podcast by Adam Fonseca from Golf Unfiltered. Adam, thanks for coming on. Hey, how's it going, Matt? I hope you had a good uh, Father's Day. I did, thank you. Um, and to set the stage here a little bit, Adam and I, a couple weeks ago, got the chance to play Medina course number two. And that's not the major championship course that everybody knows, but it's a Tom Bendelow design that was recently restored by Reese Jones. And it's build by Medina as their family course. And there are some really interesting things about the course 
that I think are worth talking about, uh, things that I think ought to be implemented in other places. And so we just wanted to get together and share some thoughts about what we saw there, what we might like to see uh, brought to other courses. So Adam, I'll let you start it off. What did you take away from the round? What were some of the things that uh, impressions you came away with? Well, first and foremost, thanks again for uh, inviting me to go out there. I know that uh, you had gotten a preview of the restoration, uh, which I believe Reese Jones was there, according to your the article that you put on your website, uh, kind of explaining all the the things that he was doing to restore the look and feel, of course, too. But the thing that just grabbed me right from the start, aside from the mammoth banquet hall that Medina is known for uh, was just how uh, beautiful everything looked. I mean, obviously it's an extremely gorgeous uh, property and you go out there and, and this is a fully restored course. It had an old look and feel to it, but also brand new uh, thanks to all the work that had recently been done. And, you know, throughout the round, I just kept, you know, just marveling at the undulations in the green uh, yet still very receptive and definitely playable. I mean, I, you and I were, not to brag, but we made a few putts that we probably wouldn't have made <laughs> at other <laughs> courses just because of how true the, the greens were rolling. That was the biggest takeaway that I saw. Yeah, certainly the conditions there are phenomenal, um, which is unfortunately not something that you're going to be able to replicate on every public course. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, yeah, I don't think I've been on greens that rolled any better than that. Uh, they were they were fantastic. And that's an interesting thing that you bring up about the beauty of the place because they've taken out a lot of trees. I think I forget what the exact number is, but it's hundreds of trees on that course. Mm -hmm. And there's very little water. There's water on the approach to nine and then behind the green on 18 and that's it. And yet I would agree with you. It's, it's very beautiful. It's uh, just a Parkland Midwest course. And when you say it, I, I do agree. It shows that you don't need huge, dramatic, gaudy features to make a course that's still very attractive. No, not at all. And you and I played it from what would have been considered the back tees. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about the, the unique tee structure that they have there, but it, it stretched out. It only played about 6,400 yards and it was still challenging. I mean, you and I, uh, you know, we're there for dual purposes, taking a few photos and maybe a couple mulligans here and there. And we both mm -hmm. played, uh, some decent golf that day, but I, I would say with all the hills, with uh, even with the remaining trees, despite having removed so many, it was still a challenge and definitely something that I won't forget. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those things that, as I said, I'd like to see in other places. And I think that all starts with the playability. Um, and, and let's start at the tee. One of the things that stood out to me is that it was very forgiving off the tee. It doesn't mean it's easy, but you could drive it. And even if you went into the trees, you were off the fairway because so many of those trees were taken out. You could still attempt a recovery shot. Do you, you'd agree with that? I would. And I actually had to do that quite a few times <laughs> during our round. What I also appreciated about the, uh, the rough and the surrounding areas that were not the fairway was that it was completely playable. I mean, it wasn't super long. There were a few areas where there was almost fescue-like grass uh, surrounding fairway bunkers. But aside from that, I mean, if you miss the fairway, you're still going to be able to get a good amount of spin on the ball hitting from the rough. So definitely playable and certainly something that golfers of any skill level would be able to appreciate. Yeah, and I think for even the better players, I think you almost appreciate that playability out of the trees or off the fairway more. Mm-hmm. 
because for a guy who's going to shoot 110, it doesn't matter if he's not in the fairway close hitting the green probably isn't realistic, but for a player who's a, a 10 handicap, 15 handicap or better, if you hit it into the trees and the only option is to punch out to me, that's not just, you know, that's just unfun and being able to attempt a recovery shot not only makes it more playable, it also makes it more fun. Well, that's just the thing. I mean, a good player, regardless of how good you are, you're still going to make mistakes off the tee every so often, and you don't want your round to be completely demolished just because of one tee shot behind a group of evergreens or something. So your your point holds true. Being able to get back into play, you're still going to be challenged with a following you know, wedge shot into a green that's, again, going to be very undulating. It's going to be extremely quick. Even though I think those greens weren't as fast as they could be, they were still very quick when we played. Uh, it still is a very solid test for any skill level. Yeah. Now, another thing that goes to that point of playability, and this was something that Reese Jones called out specifically when we were uh, when I had the opportunity to, to walk the course with him, is that the bunkers there are no lips on any of the bunkers, mm-hmm. so you can walk into them very easily, and more importantly, you can play out of them very easily. So nobody's going to be stuck in a bunker for three or four shots. You could putt out if you wanted. And to me, again, if you're a good player, you can go out of that bunker and still hit your high spinny shot and hit it close. And that's no less challenging because there's not a lip because the lip wasn't there for you anyway. But if you're a poor player, or I don't want to say a poor player, but a, a beginner player, somebody who's not as skilled, you can putt out. You basically take it as a stroke penalty and you can get on with your round, which to me, is going to help keep things fun and keep things moving. Yeah, keeping things moving is really the biggest benefit that I see from that example. And what I also noticed on a few of the holes, it wasn't every hole, but many of the greenside bunkers, you know, there, there was no fringe between the end of the bunker and the beginning of the green. It was literally, the bunker was cut into the putting surface. So to your point, even if you did just kind of splash it out and barely got the ball out of the bunker, and we've all done that before, you're now putting, and so it was extremely fair. You're still going to have that one-stroke penalty, so to speak, because you hit the ball in a bad spot to begin with. But it, you know, Jones allowed us to you know get out, get playing again, and to your point, get things moving. Yeah, that's a good, and I didn't even really uh, fully process that about being able to get it right out of the bunker and be on the green. Mm-hmm. Now, the greens are, are another part of again the playability. You can run the ball up onto every green. All the area around the greens is tightly mowed so you can play any kind of shot. You're not demanding that every player have flop shots and all that in their bag. They can putt everything if they want to. And it's really very often a good play. And once again, I don't think being able to run the ball up takes anything away from the better player, but it makes the course more accessible for the player who doesn't have a towering four iron in the bag yeah there's really nothing more frustrating than going to a municipal course or any course really and and having just a shaggy fringe or even fairway between you and the green from 20 yards out and and to your point matt you're right we had the option to put the ball up bump a fairway wood if we wanted to or or even play a, a traditional pitch shot with a wedge if you if you needed to but I feel it actually makes you think a little bit more and, and gain a better understanding of all the different shots that you need to have in your bag, uh, literally, uh, when you're playing a course like that. And so, yes, you know, if you want to take thinking out of it, 
courses like uh, this, or at least a style like this, help to make the game easier for you. But if you are a more skilled player and you wanted to play a touch shot or have that finesse towards uh, the hole to a you know a, a tucked pin or something, you still had that option too, and you weren't going to be penalized uh, for an overly tight uh, uh, lie either. You know that's always something that when you've got the leading edge on a on a wedge, you're <laughs> you're just millimeters away from chunking it, and we didn't run into that problem either. <laughs> no, no, and. And that brings us to the greens. You've mentioned the undulations already, and that's really where the course does have a little more traditional teeth, a little more defensive power. Uh, I hate that phrase, but uh, <laughs> it's but, true, but yeah, but, but that that is where it would defend the number because there are a lot of breaks. And again, going tying in the the surrounds and the thinking to the greens. If you're a good player and you've put yourself in a bad spot where there's some weird undulation between you and the pin. Maybe that's where you start thinking about, oh, I could just flop this up there, take that undulation out of play, and now you're bringing big numbers into play. Whereas, again, a guy who's happy making bogey, happy making double, doesn't mind. He's going to putt it up there, let the undulations do their worst, and then take two putts from there and and be pretty happy. Um, So I do think that with really well-shaped greens, you don't need to have all of the really penal stuff out on the fairway and leading up to the green because the greens themselves are such a defense. They really are, and it brings course management uh, into the the strategy for the player of any skill level. And course management should always be there, of course, but to your point, if you know you've got a huge hump on the left side of a hole, you're going to want to play to the right no matter where the, the flag is. And so the benefit of having the, the versatile, you know, uh, closely mown grass around the green... Uh, not only serves as a way to get back into play, but, you know, the challenge is the other side of that coin, where if you're on the opposite side and you hit a chip shot too hard, chances are you're going to fall right off that false front. And we saw a lot of that, actually. Not that we were playing a U.S. Open caliber course, but this past weekend we saw that a lot. And so it just kind of brings into the, the fact that, and you put it very well, you don't need bunkers all the time. You know, a few well-placed hills or undulations is just as penal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, let's go ahead and talk about the most obvious thing on this course that makes it accessible to everyone. And that's the Longleaf T system. And I know I think you've spoken with the developer of the Longleaf T system, if I'm not mistaken. I spoke to uh, John Kim and he's uh, he wor- he's with uh, U.S. Kids Golf and they as a conglomerate um, or a group, I should say, are, are uh, really the brainchild. Are, this is the brainchild of U.S. Kids Golf. Okay, so why don't you go ahead and, and explain for the listeners what is the Longleaf Tea System and how is it implemented here at Medina? Sure. So at, at its concept, well, to take a step back even further, I mean, the traditional tea system up to now and hopefully will no longer be is the multi-tiered system that we're all familiar with. You've got the forward teas, which are usually red teas. You've got maybe two or three intermediate teas. And then you've got what we call the tips, which are usually blue or black, and everyone sees that at every golf course in America. What the Longleaf Tee system incorporates or is attempting to incorporate is a handicap-based or a swing speed-based, depending on the course system, where your driver's swing speed, for example, will put you in a certain tee group. And so as an example of that, at Medina, they had six or seven, I believe it's seven different tee options that span everywhere from 
As I mentioned from the tips, course two played 6,400 yards. It can go all the way down to just over 3,000 yards. For example, if you want to go out there with your family and some of your, uh, you know, your young children that are just getting into the game, they can still go and play the course from extremely forward tees. But even more so, uh, what I like the most about it is that if a foursome goes out and you've got four guys or ladies or a group who are of different skill levels, you can all play the same hole just from different tee settings and you're still going to have the appropriate level of challenge. The whole concept itself, according to, to John Kim, who I spoke about earlier, basically is this. If I'm hit, if you and I, Matt, go out and play and you're hitting seven iron into a green, but I have to hit five iron into every green, that's not a fair setup. And this at least gives players the opportunity to play their best but also have a similar experience hitting a similar club into the green. If you're hitting a 7-iron, I should hit a 7-iron, uh, at least if you are if you subscribe to this theory. And that way, at least, your playing experience is similar to someone who might be a little bit better than you. Yeah, and I, I think it's executed so well at Medina number 2, and I it gets into more than just moving up another 10 yards or moving up another 20 yards. Mm-hmm. The, as you pointed out, if we're not hitting similar shots, if we're not both hitting driver seven iron or whatever it is, we're not really playing the same experience. Um, and one thing everybody can envision is a hole with a forced carry in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. You know, if, let's say it's a 400 yard hole and it's 250 yards to get to the hazard. Uh, and I'm playing all the way back. So I have to hit a 250 yard drive to get there. Well, you can move up the forward tees and make it easier to get there. But then once they get there, they've still got to carry a shot 150 yards to the green. And that may be too hard for them. Maybe beyond their strength capability. And you and I were talking about this during our round. I shared with you a story of my wife, who's who's a, a good athlete. She went to college for and played softball and volleyball on scholarship. So she, she's an athletic person. But she wanted to play the forward tees at another golf course uh, recently. And because of her ability and because of how far she hits the ball, the course just was not set up appropriately for her. Every time she hit driver, she either found herself in a fairway hazard or in the middle of a lake because of the forced carry, as you just mentioned, or she would have to hit something as low as a six iron just to get it back in play. And she, I remember her looking at me, Matt, and saying, what's the point of playing? I'm not having any fun. This is where they want me to tee off from, and I don't want to tee off from where you're hitting because then that's even less fair. So this is definitely this longleaf tee system is a way to address something like that. Yeah, and I, I want to point out one particular hole where you get an idea of what it can look like and how smart it could be, mm-hmm. and that's number nine. Now, number nine has the only approach on the course that's got a forced carry. There's a little little water hazard, and it's for the, from the back tees, it's 358 yards, and the, the hazard is... Something like, you know, to to get to the edge of it and then hit to the green is something like 90 yards, somewhere somewhere in that range, um, maybe 80 yards. The forwardmost tees are at 83 yards. They're Mm -hmm. right up at the hazard. So for that player who doesn't hit it very far and probably doesn't get it into the air very easily, they're getting to hit their tee shot over that hazard. So they're getting to put the ball on a peg. And... I looked at that as we were walking and I just smiled. I said, how smart is that? You know, for the kid, I, my two daughters are starting to play and they hit everything six inches high. Mm-hmm. If I could get them to, you know, 
put the ball on a tee and hit it over that water, they're going to be so happy. Whereas even if you put that tee another 50 yards back, that makes all the difference because they're going to hit to the water and then try and hit over it and drown it and have zero fun. Yeah, absolutely. there's a lot more to this than just saying, well, throw some more T markers in the ground. You've got to be thoughtful about designing the course around this system and where are you putting those markers on each and every hole. Yeah, and it even takes into consideration just the challenge itself. I mean, that that hole you specifically reference, it, that that water carry still presents a challenge for any player. And so to your point... You know, I would love to see someone, a beginner, to go out there and, and, you know, accomplish that feat of hitting a golf ball over the water for maybe the first time. And, you know, picture this at any course in America, not just a, a great place like Medina. That's that's a big deal for a player that's just trying to learn the game. And, you know, it definitely keeps things moving along. You don't have to wait for someone to take five or six shots just to get to that 83 yards and then hopefully hit it over the water. And so, yeah, this is just so many positives to this that I'm sure we'll even talk more about. Yeah, and I I, I think we there are a couple of things, I want, a couple of directions I want to go here. But the one that just definitely came to my mind is I was just speaking the other week with somebody about growing golf. And people are talking about growing golf all the time. Mm-hmm. And the big thing that will grow golf is people having that one light bulb moment or that one moment that where they hit a pure shot and they just say, wow, this is it. Well, hitting that shot, hitting a shot over a water hazard, that could be the shot for a beginning golfer. Right. And you're giving golf the chance to have that moment for somebody. Which is going to bring them back. It's going to bring them back time and again. Right. Right. So, I mean, I, I just see truly i see no downside to this system and i think we ought to be pushing our municipal courses to adopt this more readily the only the only thing i can see i agree with you by the way i mean there's just minimal uh cons to this type of system and one of those minimizing factors might be just people following the system you know i mean people, <laughs> people these days play from the tips when they shouldn't uh, but that's that's easily mitigated by, you know, having marshals or starters on the tee box, uh, you know, who actually do their job as opposed to just ride around all day. <laughs> um, yeah. But that, yeah. that is one way you can kind of uh, mitigate that risk. Right. Yeah. And at some point, you can't save people from themselves, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. No, another thing that I loved about the redesign here is the walkability. Uh, there are uh, tee boxes that are really almost attached to the green that came before them. Mm-hmm. It is such a compact, walkable course. And I think that's good on a number of levels. It's good environmentally, and it's good, again, in terms of being walkable. If more people are out walking, I think that helps pace of play, makes golf, uh, you know, it's a more of an exercise, makes mm-hmm. golf a little less expensive also. You don't have cart fees. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, everything was very accessible in that way um i don't think we we were in a cart and i don't think we drove more than just maybe less than a minute (laughs) to every tee box um but what i like the most about it is sometimes you have courses that are very accessible like that but all the holes and fairways are very you know like smushed together this wasn't that Uh, the holes were heading in at angles and opposite directions where you know you weren't in risk of 
you know, clobbering somebody with an errant drive. Uh, there weren't many people out there when we played, but I can also see how it was still going to be spread out enough, yet from green to tee box was very, very short, uh, which is extremely positive for all the reasons that you put out. Yeah, and it basically just goes back to showing again, reemphasizing how important good golf course architecture is. Because uh, it's so easy to get it wrong and, as you said, make it too compact, make it almost dangerous to be out there. Um, but when you get it right, you can have a course that isn't too hard to walk, but also everybody's safe, everybody's got their own space, you don't feel like you're on top of other golfers. Um, it, again, it just it can't be overemphasized how important good design is. Yeah, and it's just common sense, too. I mean, good, yeah. <laughs> good, common sense goes a long way. You don't, you don't want to... If you're teeing off and you've got a chance of, of just, you know, murdering somebody coming up the other way, that, that just, uh, that's not a good time for me. No. Now, the, the last thing that we've touched on a little bit already with all these other points is just how fast the play is at this course. You and I played, and we there were multiple times where we were standing on a tee box finishing up a story where nobody was hitting a shot. We were... You know, because we didn't have anybody behind us, anybody in front of us. Mm -hmm. This was an extremely relaxed round. Neither of us broke the course record, and we <laughs> played and played in under three and a half hours. Yeah, it was quick. It was it was really moving well. And now, granted, you know, private course, um, probably not a lot of traction on there already. But I mean, it's not. It was a nice day out. It wasn't like it was raining oh, it was and we were. Yeah, it was perfect, and it's not like. You know, people couldn't be out there. We were, you know, not early in the morning, but certainly what I would consider prime time tee off time. Um, but yeah, I mean, we were able to, you know, actually uh, still have good conversations and it wasn't like a, a feeling of being rushed. Uh, I think a few times you and I actually threw down, you know, uh, some additional putts just to try that putt again, you know, because we want, we were just marveling over the condition of the greens, but you know, the fact being is this wasn't a overly simple golf course. It wasn't impossible by any means. It was just laid out so well. And I can picture, you know, two of my other friends or anyone that you have in mind that might not be of the same skill level as you and I, because you and I are pretty similar. It, they could tee off from a different tee setting or tee placement, and we would still probably be playing at a pretty good clip. So it was just a very positive experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and given that, I think eight out of 10 golfers would list pace of play as one of their biggest gripes. It's just another reason why I keep using the phrase, this ought to be a template right. for what courses are doing. So if you've got any pull with your municipal course or your private course or whatever, wherever it is you play, wherever it is you come in contact with the game, I think you ought to be talking to them about using that long leaf tee system. If you are, are doing any kind of redesign, Think about making it more walkable. Think about making those hazards a little more mild, a little less penal, fewer trees, less water. Um, just make it more playable. You can still have plenty of challenge, uh, but also make the game accessible, make it fast, allow people to get out there and walk, and allow people of all different levels to play. Yeah, and, and you know, the other benefit of this too, Matt, is... I, I don't know how it is by you. We live somewhat in the same area um, in the suburbs of Chicago, but at least by me in my immediate radius, 
there aren't many nine-hole courses. You know, I live by Cog Hill, as many of the listeners know, and you can't just go out there and play nine holes and come back in. The the ninth hole goes all the way out in the middle of the property, followed by the tenth, which brings you all the way back. And so using a tee system like this will not only help you play faster, but also get you back home a lot quicker as well. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, most everybody says, you know, they don't get to play enough. Well, you could play more if you were playing in three and a half hours instead of five and a half. Exactly. So, well, we'll we'll leave that there, and I'll uh, ask you. The U.S. Open just wrapped up yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were some of your big takeaways? What did you enjoy watching over the weekend? Any thoughts on Phil and everything else that happened? Oh man, there is so much going on. I mean, end of the day, I was actually talking to another buddy uh, who does a show, and yesterday, and he. Uh, asked me if there was one word to describe the U.S. Open from this past weekend, and I just said bloodbath. I mean, the the course was set up in such a way that that is not how the game of golf should be played, in my opinion. Obviously, this was a very specific tournament, our national championship. Uh, you know, the best players on the planet uh, and the, the rest <laughs> who qualified uh, were playing in the championship, and so certainly they're going to be put to the test, but... I mean, the golf course completely got away from the USGA. Um, there was It was just not fun to watch when eventual champion Brooks Kepka hits a sand wedge to five feet just to see it roll off the green. I mean, that's that's not fun. And it kind of feeds into what you and I were just talking about. Again, different context entirely. But, I mean, you can't you can't set a golf course up to be impossible and expect people to enjoy the game. And in this instance, at least for me, I don't know how you feel, but watching the U.S. Open this weekend, while it was enjoyable on Sunday, after they softened the course up, Saturday was terrible. I didn't even want to watch it. I actually ended up turning it off and went and did something else. Uh, but it, it was just, it was very difficult to watch. But, I, you know, end of the day, these major championships, they tend to still reward the player that played the best, which is obviously the point. And, you know, Brooks Kepka was that guy. Yeah, I think it brought into stark relief uh, just kind of the inherent unfairness of golf Mm -hmm. uh, with regard to the weather and the fact that it's a game played out in the elements. Uh, Because you look at at the course that the leaders were playing on Saturday, and that's clearly not the same course where Daniel Berger and Tony Finau shot 66 each, I think, somewhere in that that range. Um, You know, obviously there's some, some variance you know, some guys are going to shoot low, some guys aren't, but it just didn't seem like the same course at all uh, when they were playing later in the day. And and that's part of the game, uh, but it, it is definitely was a little bit hard to watch and uh, not not real fun viewing for us where maybe we would like to see the best players hit a close, make birdies, and not watch the ball roll back into the fairway 40 yards. Well, and not to get philosophical, but I mean, it gets to kind of what we were talking about um but you can't help but wonder if the usga doesn't want the game to be easier (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's probably more receptive for the average guys like you and me but you know this whole concept of there's two different worlds of golf that the usga still has input in oversight of uh it's it's just a dynamic that i've really not wrapped my head around too much and can't understand that while one side we're trying to bring more people to the game but at the highest levels of competition we're trying to absolutely embarrass them 
You know, it just it seems like just a an odd dynamic. Yeah, I'll push back on that a little bit. I don't know that the best players struggling at the U.S. Open is going to drive anybody away from the game who was thinking about playing otherwise. And I could be wrong. If somebody wants to send me a, an email or a tweet saying <laughs> that's exactly what happened to me. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll be wrong. But um, I'm not sure that I, I see that one. Mm-hmm. But I, I would agree that it just, from an aesthetic standpoint, it's just not a lot of fun to watch, uh, especially for people who are a little more of the average fan. I think you and I, maybe we can rationalize the difficulty and say, ah, well, but you know, in this case he hit the wrong shot or he was from the wrong position or things like that. But I think the average guy who's just watching golf and sees the ball bouncing over the green or rolling back off the front just kind of says, eh, that's just screwy and weird Mm -hmm. and maybe I don't like it. But speaking of the ball rolling off the front of the green, got to ask, <laughs> should Phil have been DQ'd? I love that segue. That was really Thank good. You. Thank <laughs> you. I've, I've done like 20 of these now. I'm getting good. <laughs> um, I think Phil should have been DQ'd, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I know what the rule says, and I know that it was probably assessed appropriately. Um, but the rule itself, I believe, I didn't write the rule, but I believe it was to uh, address any situations where the player accidentally or unknowingly hit a ball while it was moving. Phil obviously knew what he was doing, and it was a pretty blatant act to better his position, calculated or not, on a hole that honestly just kind of disrespects the rest of the field. Now, I I believe there's another rule deep in the bowels of the rule book <laughs> that uh, actually gives um, tournament officials in certain circumstances uh, – the ability to disqualify somebody if they feel that it was egregious. Um, in the hours that followed the end of the third round, we come to learn that Mike Davis and Phil Mickelson did actually have a conversation. Uh, don't know what was said. I believe Phil probably had some pretty choice words because those two don't get along at all. Um, and the penalty, uh, the two shot penalty was what they settled on. So end of the day, I do feel he should have been disqualified because it was intentional. It was just completely done out of frustration, but we would not have then been able to see a really good performance that Phil put on playing alongside Ricky Fowler on Sunday. So is it the end of the world? No. If it was any other player than Phil, I would imagine they weren't. He wasn't, he was not going to play on Sunday. Yeah, that's, that's a little bit of what bothers me. I'm definitely in the DQ camp. Um, I, I thought it was, was egregious. It was intentional. It was not in the spirit of the rules, all those things. Um, I've read some people with the take that like he was making a point. He was trying to like dare the USGA to disqualify him and show how ridiculous the course setup was. And I don't know whether he was or wasn't. I don't know if that really affects my thinking on it one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, as you said, he was playing against the field of competitors and it was disrespectful to them. I think, um, yeah, yeah. and again, I, I mean, and and to your point, I think anybody else probably would have been maybe maybe you know ten guys plus Phil right. uh, wouldn't wouldn't have gotten tossed for that. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, if like Tiger or Jordan or any of the big names that we can think of, I mean, they, they would not have been. But uh, we also come to learn too that Phil was actually thinking of withdrawing from the tournament uh, immediately following the third round, and I would have believed that that would have been a bigger middle finger to the USGA than than what he actually did. Um, cooler heads prevailed. Uh, that 
uh, background actually came from his wife in, a, in an interview, uh, his wife Amy in an interview with, I forget who uh, they told that to, but yeah, it was just an odd situation, something that you don't ever see, obviously. Um, I love the fact that he said that he's thought about doing it before, specifically on 15 at Augusta, and could you imagine <laughs> if he did that at Augusta National? No, oh, I, my goodness. I couldn't. I think, I think the Green Jackets would come out within minutes and <laughs> carry him off the course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you got time for a back nine? We This is your second time on the show. We we didn't do a back nine the first time. You got oh, time yeah. for it? Oh, yeah. I'm All excited. Right. Let's do it. All right. This I have to, I hope you've got a good one for this. This is you're you're a gear guy. What's your favorite golf club you've ever owned? Oh gosh. Um man, that I've I've owned quite a few that I like. Uh the one that I love right now though, and I am biased, but I truly mean this is Frickson's U uh U uh, 65 utility iron. I just completely messed up the name, but it's the six, it's the new <laughs> utility club that's uh just amazing. And I can hit that thing. You saw me hit it a couple times uh, when we played at Medina. It, it, it was, it's just an amazing club, and it sounds great. I love it. My understanding is that they might be coming up with an upgrade soon. But, yeah, that right now, this instant, that's that's my favorite club. I, I had a feeling you were going to go there. I was kind of hoping for something out of the archives, but, but all right, <laughs> I'll, I'll let it go. Okay. What's the number one course on your bucket list? Number one course on my bucket list. Wow. Um, probably Bandon. Okay. A- any of them. <laughs> Accessible. I like that. Yeah. Not uh, not going for one of the, the super hard gets. Right. Um, what's your pet peeve on the course? Hmm. Playing behind a foursome where they play, they have two carts and it's just poor art uh, cart etiquette. You yeah. Know? If someone's waiting to hit, the other person better be at their ball ready to hit as well. That's that's a that's terrible to watch. Yes. yes. Who's your favorite playing partner? Hmm. Probably my buddy Matt Hackett, who you probably heard uh, a couple episodes ago on uh, the GU podcast. He's a heck of a player. Went to college together. Went to high school together. Uh, he always beats me, but he's he's good company. Okay. What is the best part of your game right now? <laughs> uh, believe it or not, actually getting off the tee. Um, I've gotten a lot better there. Um, my putting seems to have picked up a little bit too, but only when I play on, on nice greens, like it was. <laughs> I was going to say you putted pretty well the other day. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, what feature do you hate to see on a golf course? I hate to see, uh, uh poor attempts at a, uh, aesthetically pleasing, like rock fixtures or something <laughs> that I'm going to hit my golf ball off of. And it has no purpose of being on the course, but they're just trying to be fancy. Uh, yeah. I, I just don't see the point. Okay. That's, that's a good one. I, that's, that's original. I like when people have answers I haven't heard before. <laughs> something not business related. What's the best money you've ever spent on golf? Hmm. Um, I, I, just within the last couple of years, I bought a Jones utility stand bag, and I love the traditional look of not only what Jones does, but just old golf stuff in general. Yeah. Um, it was only a couple hundred dollars, and, and that was probably the best. Jones makes great stuff. I've got one of the, the non-stand bags. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it. Really good stuff. Yep. What's your favorite golf destination? Um, I've been to Myrtle Beach a ton, so that's probably number one. Um, 
there's quite a few courses out there, obviously, that people know about. Uh, you know, you can go there and, and find a good time. Although, locally, you know, we don't have to go too far here. Eagle Ridge in uh, Galena is a heck of a place. Yeah? Yeah, I'm, it's I'm, really good. I'm headed out there in, next month. Nice. So I'm looking for the first time, so I'm looking forward to that. You'll enjoy it. But pay uh, special close attention to the North Course. That's my favorite one. Okay. Not the general. Not the general. All right. Last one. If you could tell all golfers one thing, what would it be? Practice with a purpose. I know that sounds cliche, but uh, you and I were kind of talking a little bit before we got going about just how sometimes, you know, uh, beginner golfers might go out there and just rip through a large bucket of balls in 20 minutes. Practice like you're actually playing. Set up. Go through your pre-shot routine. It's just going to help you so much more. Absolutely. Good, good advice. Well, Adam, this has been super fun. I appreciate you coming on. You're the first two-time guest, so Woo! thank you. Absolutely. Uh, and for anyone listening, Adam, you can find Adam at golfunfiltered.com, at golfunfiltered on Twitter and Instagram, correct? That's right, yes. Perfect. Once again, thank you for coming on. Absolutely, anytime. <laughs>